Psalm 2 is our first reading. Psalm 2, a passage that we've read often as a corollary text as, as I've been preaching through the book of Revelation. Um, obviously, it has great reference to what the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to John in the revelation to him. Psalm 2, verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Revelation chapter 17, verses 7 through 14 is our text. We'll begin our reading at verse 1 of chapter 17 here in Revelation We are continuing to read God's inspired and inerrant word. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, and with whom the kings of earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the land were made drunk with the wine. Of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, having blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood 
of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was not, which rather was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. And pray with me for... God's blessing upon the preaching and hearing of his word. Our God, our great Father, we give thanks to you for your word. We thank you, O Lord, and seven times a day we will praise you for your word. You've said, O God, that all Scripture is inspired by you, breathed out by you. We understand this to mean that the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, you have given us your very word in the Holy Scriptures. And you have taught us, O Lord, that All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That believers in Christ may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We acknowledge, O God, that uh, the book that we've been considering these past uh, many months 
The book of Revelation is hard. It's hard to understand. Uh, We are often perplexed by its symbols, but at the same time, O God, you have told us, and we believe that it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction that we may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, our God, we pray that you would give us understanding and insight, that we might profit from it, and that we may be equipped for our calling. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 17 begins with one of the seven angels who poured out the seven bowls of wrath, showing John the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. In the first six verses here in chapter 17, the mystery of the great harlot, the mother of harlots, John says, is presented to us. Last week in verses 1 through 6, we considered together the evidence supporting the identification of this woman, this great harlot with first century, uh, the first century uh, church, the first century Jerusalem. We also considered the characteristics of the great harlot. She dwells by choice in the wilderness, the habitation of demons. The uh, wilderness is the sign of the curse, rather than in the promised land, verse 3 here in chapter 17. Second, verse 4, she's clothed in uh, purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, still carrying the trappings of the pure and chaste bride of uh, Jesus Christ, the passing herself off as, as the true church. Third, uh, verse 5, the harlot has on her forehead a name written. As rebellious Israel is said in Jeremiah 3 and verse 3 to have a harlot's forehead. Fourth, The harlot is drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. It is uh, Israel. It is the Jews who killed the prophets, who persecuted the church, some of them to death. In chapter 17, verses 7 to 18, uh, we have something that we don't often get in the book of Revelation. We get, a, we get an interpretation of the symbols. We get an explanation. Now, granted, uh, the angel explains these things in more symbols, but nevertheless, what we have here ought to help us, ought to underscore what we've said in uh, these first four verses about the great harlot, and especially the scarlet beast on which she is sitting. 
We'll consider the first part of this explanation here in uh, verses 7 to 18 today. Lord willing, we'll consider the second part in the remainder of the chapter next Lord's Day. As we look at verses 7 to 14, the angel's explanation has the doctrine of predestination written across the face of it. The doctrine of predestination is not a popular one. Uh, sometimes even some of the, the greatest theologians in the world, the greatest theologians known to the church, have begun by hating the doctrine of predestination. Jonathan Edwards, arguably the greatest theologian America has ever produced, said that he hated predestination until he loved it because he found it embraced in the scriptures. The late R.C. Sproul confessed in his book on the sovereignty of God that he hated the doctrine of predestination until he loved it because he found it expressed clearly, taught clearly in the scriptures and then uh, embraced it. And we learned two things about uh, the doctrine of predestination. It actually comprises the two parts of the doctrine of predestination. As I'll later say, uh, we don't often think of the other part. We think of the one rather than the other. But in the first place, we learn here in the angel's explanation that God has predestined rebels to destruction. God has predestined rebels to destruction. Secondly, God has predestined his people to triumph with Christ. In the first place, the angel begins with those who are rebels against God. God has predestined these rebels to destruction, the angel says in his explanation. The beast was ordained for destruction. That's the essence of the angel's message concerning the beast. The angel begins his explanation by speaking about the beast. Since the harlot's uh, affiliation, association with the beast is so integral to her character and to her destiny. In earlier in the context that we read in verse 3 here in chapter 17, John sees the harlot sitting on a harlot beast. Now it's not immediately clear whether the scarlet beast refers to Satan, the great red dragon, or the sea beast symbolizing the Roman Empire. I know last week I really focused on the second part that the uh, that that the the the, the beast represents the uh, Roman Empire here uh, but it's not entirely clear because uh, the as we've noted 
The beast is full of blasphemous names, which fits the description of the sea beast, chapter 13, verse 1, uh, that has blasphemous names written on, uh, uh, said it's full of uh, blasphemous names. Uh, so, in one sense, we can say that the, the, this scarlet beast is uh, the Roman Empire. Corporately, that uh, individually, it's uh, the Emperor Nero, as we've said previously. But then remember that uh, Satan, like the scarlet beast, is described as having seven heads and ten horns, chapter 12 and verse 3. So it seems that what we have here in chapter 17 and verse 3 is a reference to Jerusalem's apostate alliance with Satan and the Roman Empire. Rome was the devil's political incarnation, if you will. Uh, And the the two could certainly be considered together under one image of the scarlet beast. In other words, this is a composite beast comprising the attributes of both the Roman Empire and the devil. What the angel says of the beast here in verses 7 and 8 of our text today, that he has seven heads and and ten horns and comes up from the abyss, is a reference to the devil himself. And so we're to understand the expression of verse 8, was and is not and is about to come up out of the the abyss and go to destruction as an enigmatic picture of Satan. He's the king of the abyss, chapter 9 and verse 11 of Revelation. The beast that comes up out of the abyss to kill the two witnesses, chapter 11, verse 7. It's also apparent that the vision has a person or an entity in view that is eventually destroyed by uh, in which and in which uh, Satan uh, manifests himself. Since here in verse eight, those who dwell on the land—that is, the apostate Jews—wonder. When they see the beast. So this is a, uh, John is referring here to a visible manifestation of Satan. Uh, He's referring here to an agent of Satan, whether a person or uh, an institution. The angel represents the beast as a parody of God. He's, uh, in other words, children, he's mimicking the beast here. Because of God, in chapter 1 and verse 4, it, it said that he is and was and is to come. But of the beast, the angel says that he was and is not and will come. As to the 
a specific person represented by the beast. One interpreter suggests Vespasian, who became Caesar after the chaos of the Emperor Nero's death. He writes, the beast was, the beast was in favor with Nero, and is not, he fell from favor with Nero, and will come up from the abyss. He was restored to favor at a a later time. Another interpreter has suggested that the Roman Empire is uh, the reference, since in a sense, it passed through these same stages. It was uh, from uh, Caesar to Nero. It was not in the critical year of the four emperors. And it came again with Vespasian. Now, we can't be certain. Uh, We can't say with any certainty exactly what this refers to. But what's clear is that the beast was ordained for destruction. The beast is predestined for destruction. And the angel in verse 8 also reveals that the beast's followers are predestined for destruction. Those who dwell on the land, that is, among the Jews, the apostate Jews, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. The, this composite beast, the dragon beast, will be successful in carrying off apostate Israel into his idolatrous cult. The beast's ascension from the abyss brings destruction both for him and for his followers. That's Satan's destiny. That's the destiny of those who follow Satan. Now, why did the Jews reject Christ? And worship the dragon beast. Because in contrast to the elect. Who were chosen in him. Before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 verse 4. Apostate Israel's name. Has not been written in the book of life. From the foundation of the world. That is from all eternity. Ultimately, they rejected Christ because their name was not written in the book of life. The gospel parallel is found in John 10.26 in Christ's response to the Jews at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem who didn't believe his declaration that he was the Christ And didn't believe his miraculous works. What did Jesus say about these unbelieving Jews? He said, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. He didn't say you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Peter wrote that, 
Jesus Christ, the great cornerstone, was for the Jews a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. This is uh, predestination language. To this doom they were also appointed. They stumbled. Because they were appointed to this doom. We have then in the midst of uh, the angel's explanation of the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, here in Revelation chapter 17, of all places, perhaps a place we wouldn't expect it, the doctrine of divine predestination. And particularly, the side that we don't think about. When we contemplate the doctrine of predestination, we typically think of election. And that doctrine has enough, to, uh, that part of predestination has enough, uh, comprises enough uh, to deal with in and of itself. But there's a second part of the doctrine of predestination called reprobation. And reprobation has two parts. Preterition and pre-condemnation. In preteration, before the foundation of the world, before God created anything, any of the reality that we know God determined by his decree, his eternal decree, from all eternity, God determined to pass some by and to condemn them for their sins. Now that may not be any harder to swallow than election, although it is for many that God, before the foundation of the world, chose some to be his own people. He elected some and others. He determined to pass by and condemn them eternally for their sin. On the ground or basis of sin... God made that determination to pass by and condemn those whose names are not written in the book of life, who are not his sheep, who are appointed to eternal destruction. And then according to his own good pleasure, on the ground or the basis of his love, because their names are written in the book of life, because they are his sheep, and because they have been appointed to eternal life. God determined to elect some to everlasting bliss. Paul, Paul's comments on 
the election of Jacob and the reprobation of Esau and Pharaoh in Romans chapter 9 is the clearest explication of the doctrine of predestination in all the scriptures. God has predestined rebels for destruction. That's the first thing that the angel explains here in his uh, interpretation of the woman who sits on uh, the great the great harlot who sits on the scarlet beast. And then secondly, God has predestined his people to triumph in Christ. In verses 9 to 10, the angel continues to speak of Satan's incarnation in the beast from the sea. He begins in verse 9. Here is the mind that has wisdom. That is, here's what you need to understand here. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. The seven mountains, again, identify Rome, uh, identify the beast as Rome, famous for its seven hills. But these also correspond to the line, the line of the Caesars, for they are seven kings, the angel goes on to say. Five have fallen, the angel explains. The first five Caesars were Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and, Cla- and Claudius. One is, the angel says, Nero, the sixth Caesar, and one was on the th- uh, he was the one on the throne when uh, John uh, wrote the book of Revelation. And the other the angel says, has not come. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. Galba, uh, the uh, seventh Caesar, reigned for less than seven months in that uh, year of the four Caesars. But the angel warns that the fall of this line of Caesars, uh, often referred to as the uh, uh, Julio-Claudian dynasty, the first five Caesars, and the severe political chaos that accompanied it mustn't be interpreted by the first century church to mean that that was the end of the troubles. Because he reveals in verse 11 that the beast will become incarnated in other Caesars as well. The beast also symbolizes an eighth king who yet is of the seven kings, uh, the seven Caesars who, are, who were before him. And in other words, the anti-Christian brutality of the succeeding seven Caesars is going to survive and will mark this eighth Caesar as being of the same stripe as the seven Caesars that preceded him. The vision to John warns Christians living in John's day, that uh, even though the empire will seem to disintegrate after the rule of the seven kings, that persecution will live on through imperial Rome, that the church will continue to be persecuted, and yet the empire's comeback will not result in a victory for the beast. For the eighth Caesar goes to destruction. Verse 11 
says. Angel proceeds to say in verse 12 that the ten horns that John saw on the beast are ten kings. These ten kings are associated with the beast, adorning his head as crowns. And this is evident as well, their association with the beast is evident in that they receive authority with the beast. That is, by virtue of their relationship with the beast, the rulers are subject to or allied with the Roman Empire. Some have understood this as the ten uh, Roman provinces, uh, because uh, because Rome had ten provinces, uh, they see these as the ten horns. But uh, this could be a, simply a symbol of the totality of those who are allied, who are subject to uh, subject kings, who who aided Rome in her wars against uh, uh, Judaism and against Christianity. The burden of the text. Uh, is to point to these kings who who are represented by the ten horns on uh, the beast uh, with whom the harlot has committed harlotry as the instruments of uh, her eventual destruction as verses uh, we'll see next week, Lord willing, in verses 16 and 17. The angel further explains in verses 13 and 14 uh, that these kings have one purpose, that they join with the the beast against Christ, persecuting the church throughout the provinces and subordinate kingdoms of the empire. They give their power and authority to the beast. They lend power to Satan on the land, on the earth. This has always been the ultimate goal of reprobate man's exercise of government. The attempt to dethrone God. This is nothing less than the playing out of what we read in Psalm 2 this morning. The kings of earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his Christ. And you remember the warning given. This is Jehovah giving a warning to rebels, a warning to those who rebel against Christ, a warning to those who set themselves up against Christ and and his church. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The angel's conclusion to this section in chapter 17 shows the church of John's day that in their terrible and terrifying day of conflict with the 
awful might of imperial Rome. And it shows uh, the church of all ages that in their war with Satan and his agents throughout the centuries, the victory of Christianity is guaranteed. The Lamb will overcome. The Lamb will conquer them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. God's elect stand with Him in this victory. God's elect participate with Him in this victory. The Lamb Chapter 14, verse 1, is standing on Mount Zion, and with him the elect of all ages, and his name and the name of his father are written against, uh, rather on their foreheads. Rebellion against God is futile. The king will be victorious. His elect people have been predestined to share in his triumph. We shouldn't hate the doctrine of predestination. We shouldn't despise what's clearly been revealed in the scriptures. I maintain, as I have, as I have for, for many years, that you can't read the Bible and deny the doctrine of predestination. And you can't deny double predestination, as it's sometimes called, that God both elected some to eternal life and uh, determined from all eternity to pass some by and condemn them on the basis of their sin. It's vital, dear Christian, that you understand this. And it's vital that you understand that the Bible presents an eschatology of victory. Remember, eschatology is that theological word that we use to describe primarily to the end times, but, uh, but as well to the progression of things pertaining to salvation to the end of time, the progression of things pertaining to redemption to the end of time until the last day when all things are consummated in Christ. And the Bible uh, presents an eschatology of victory. That is, the Bible doesn't present a pessimistic view of God's redemption of the church, those he has predestined to eternal life, as though He snatches them out of the jaws of defeat, barely. The Bible teaches, as Revelation 6-2 teaches, that Jesus rides forth on his white horse as he's portrayed in the first seal, chapter 6 and verse 2 here in Revelation. Throughout redemptive history, Jesus is riding forth on his white horse, conquering And to conquer. The called and chosen and faithful that John refers to here 
in verse 14, have been predestined to conquer with Him. It's vital that you understand that there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are predestined to eternal life and those who are predestined to eternal destruction. To the rebels listening to this sermon, to those who are in rebellion against God, who are enemies of God, as the Bible describes you, I say, if you are to escape eternal destruction, if you are to to escape the destruction to which Rebels against God and His Christ are predestined. You must be reconciled through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way of escape, and that's the only way of escaping this eternal destruction. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but by me. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death, that is, out of eternal death, into life. Faith in Jesus Christ is the way of escape, the way of escaping the eternal destruction that awaits all those who remain enemies of God in rebellion against the Lord and His Christ. To you who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I say, God calls you to strive to make your calling and election sure. Can you be sure that you're of God's elect? Is that possible? The Apostle Peter, in his second epistle, says that it is, because he tells us to do so. He tells us to make our calling and election sure. He tells us that even as the angel's explanation of the vision to John tells us, the called and chosen are faithful. That is, having been predestined to salvation out of eternal destruction, having been predestined to eternal life, the called and the chosen bear the fruit that inevitably accomplishes, uh, accompanies rather election. First Peter, or rather Second Peter, uh, chapter two. makes this abundantly clear. Therefore, brethren, listen closely to this, you who struggle with assurance of salvation. There are many Christians who struggle with, with assurance of salvation. I've spoken to believers who have been in the church for 50, 60 years who still struggle with assurance of salvation. Listen to what Peter says. Therefore, brethren, 
2 Peter 1.10, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. As long as you practice these things, Peter says. What things? Well, he's begun the epistle with those things. In verses 5 through 7, he says, For this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, that is, in your faith in Jesus Christ, you who profess faith, you you who have believed in Jesus Christ, in your faith, Supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, kindness, and in your kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Peter isn't saying that we have to be perfect in our righteousness. He's not saying that we have to be perfect in our obedience to God. He says that we must be growing in our obedience to God. He says that we must be growing in our fruitfulness, bearing the fruit of the Spirit in our Christian experience, and that the practice of righteousness and not the practice of lawlessness is what must characterize us. Am I going to sin in this life? Yes, I am. And that's true of you as well. Will I ever be perfect in my obedience in this life? No, I will not, and neither will you. But if I am growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I wrestle with sin, as I strive through the Spirit's help, never on my own, If by the Spirit you're putting to to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Paul writes in Romans uh, chapter 8. If I am characteristically becoming conformed to the image of God and to the image of Christ, then you see I can be sure. 
that I am, a one, I am among the elect of God. And you can be sure that you're among the elect of God, notwithstanding the sin that so constantly plagues us. God has provided a way to escape the destruction that is coming for rebels against Christ, and God has provided a way for us to make our calling and election sure through faithfulness to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are humbled by uh, the revelation that we have found in the midst of this angel's interpretation of uh, the vision to John of uh, the great harlot who sits on the scarlet beast. We are humbled, O Lord, by uh, the, the idea that we can know certainly that you have called and chosen us, that you have elected us to eternal life, Because the seed of Christ, the seed of righteousness is growing in us because we are learning to uh, not to carry out the desires of the flesh, but to carry out the desires of the spirit. And this is what we we long for, O Lord. We long to see uh, these manifestations of fruit in our lives and holiness before you. We acknowledge, O God, that so often instead, as you examine our hearts, you find sin, and that we hold on to sin as something so dear to us, as as our little darling, uh, and instead of putting away, we we continue in it. We pray, O Lord, that you would continually loosen the grasp that we with which we clutch on to sin and unrighteousness and unholiness and make us oh god righteous and holy as you have called us to be would we believe the promises that you've given us concerning this Uh, but we confess at the same time our unbelief. Help us in our unbelief and grant us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to his glorious bride, the Church of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.